Today's message is going to be a, a review of a message, uh, and uh, there's going to be a lot of information, and then I, was going to, I hope there will be some inspiration at the end of this message. I want to uh, start, though, by going back to why we are doing this whole series. Um, this series, through the Bible, is really designed to get you into the Scriptures. Um, I really believe this is true. Your personal interaction with the Scriptures is the greatest single predictor of spiritual growth and maturity of anything you can do. It's not listening to my messages, listening to other messages. Um, it, it is the single predictor of, of growth, maturity, and your ability to be discerning. Discerning as you listen to me. Discerning. There's so much teaching that's available out there, and how can you be discerning? Um, and I really am, am trying to encourage us to to be able to spend time in the scriptures ourselves. Um, and so that's what this whole series is doing. We're taking one book of the Bible and going through it um, one book at a time. Uh, I'm going to show you a clip that I showed before, back when I preached through Job, I showed you this clip. It's so good, I'm going to show it again. Uh, it is just so pointed about why it's so important for us to know scripture on our own because of our own personal interactions with the word of God. Uh, so watch this uh, message from Jen Wilkin when she's at Dallas Seminary. And so um, I found in my early years of adulthood that I had sat in these seats and listened to someone stand up here holding the same book and teaching it in very different ways. And that was a concern to me because what I didn't have was firsthand knowledge of this text. So I was always taking someone else's word for it. It doesn't mean that the things that I was hearing from all those different people were wrong, but it meant that I really had no way to know whether one person's read on things was correct or not because I didn't have firsthand knowledge of the text. And that's actually what the false teacher and the secular humanist are relying on, right? They want to be able to take a verse from here and a verse from here and put it together however um, they choose. Or they want to be able to question a particular passage where you don't have enough context to know whether they've questioned it in the right way or not. And so people like that have been extremely able to rely on our ignorance of the text and to play on it. And I think that we are seeing the results of that in a big way in the church. So I began to have a developing commitment to Bible literacy, simply that people would just know what the Bible said. And at that point, I'm entering into what I affectionately call the pink ghetto of women's ministry. And uh, <laughs> And I realized that what women are being resourced with almost exclusively are topical studies that hit them at the feelings level. That's it, man. And it used to just be in the pink ghetto, but in the years since then, I have seen it spread into the church at large. Topical studies that hit you at a feelings level. Now, there's nothing wrong with topical studies. We need topical studies, but topical studies assume that you have a base level working knowledge of the text. If they don't, that's terrible. But a topical study takes on the color and the depth that it should when you actually know the Bible. Uh, unfortunately, what I found was that when you have an exclusive diet of topical or devotional content, which I would say is the normative experience of women in the church, and in many cases men, it means that you could spend your entire existence in the church thinking that you've gone to a Bible study only to find that you don't know the Bible. And what we increasingly were seeing were people who were curators of other people's opinions about a book that they did not trouble to read and did not know how to read. And that is where we find ourselves today. 
curators of other people's opinions about a book that they neither cared to read or knew how to read. Um, I'm committed for that to not be true at Fellowship Bible Church. I'm committed to equipping you to, to, to love God and love others, equipping you to have a baseline knowledge of the text so that the word of God is what's shaping you, not the values of the world, not the teaching of false teachers, but the word of God itself. And so that's why I really do believe that your personal interaction with the scriptures, your time in the Bible on your own, um, is the greatest single predictor of spiritual growth and maturity, the greatest predictor of your ability to be discerning. Um, There is something hugely powerful about the Word of God being applied by the Spirit of God to the people of God directly, not through the mediator of a teacher. Are there teachers uh, important? Yes, I think to guide you, but it's your time in the Word that I am really committed to making sure um, you are able to spend time in in the Word that you know the word of God and that you can be discerning and you can grow. Um, I've had three real goals for this whole um, series. The, the, the byline underneath it is context, content, and conviction. Um, in the context part, I'm really trying to provide an understanding of the original historical, cultural, and literary background of every single book. Genesis to Revelation, understanding where it fits in the history of scripture, what's going on culturally at that time, and literarily, how is it presented? With the content, I'm trying to provide uh, the ability for you to grasp the big picture of each book so that you can um, properly interpret it when you get into the details. Seeing the forest so that you can understand the trees and understand what you're looking at there. And finally, we want there to be some conviction making application of this um, in this powerfully spirit-inspired message, Not, not anything other than what the Holy Spirit has inspired in Scripture not trying to motivate you to participate in something or, or trying to um, get you to, to be involved in something other than spiritual growth. That's what this entire series is really designed to do, is to help you engage with Scripture uh, on your own. Um, in order to do that, uh, for today's message, which is really a review of the Gospels, there's going to be a lot of uh, content, and then there's going to be some focus that prepares us uh, for taking the Lord's Supper today. Uh, I provided two very, very different resources at the Connection Center and, um, and online. They're available. I'm not sure if any more are available in the context, in, at the Connection Center. They were going fast um, after the first service. But the one is by Mark Strauss. It's two pages that's a narrative of the life of Christ. What he does is he just narrates through the life of Christ on two pages. It's one page front and back, uh, and, and he just talks you through, this is the flow of the life of Christ. Um, the other thing that I put out there is significantly longer. Um, it is this document here. It's eight pages, and I've put it together in a way um, that you can take it and you can take it al- along with you. All I've done is I've taken um, two different resources, um, a, a Life of Christ study by uh, J. Dwight Pentecost and then Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold Honer. I've kind of meshed those two things together and put them into um, a, a document that is the chronology of the life of Christ. What this does is just goes through Christ's life 
life chronologically and lets you know, okay, here are the things that are happening. Um, and, and one of the things that I think is the most helpful part of it is over here in this column, it has all of the places in Scripture where you find those parts of the story. So you'll find where it is in Matthew. And if it's in Mark and Luke, it's going to list, here's where they all are. It's called a harmony of the gospel. It harmonizes all of this. But you'll see, oh, that story's only in Matthew. That story's only in Luke. Oh, John has only this story. And it'll help you see where they are. And when you're putting things together, this can be a real helpful guide for you and help you put some of these stories together. So I put those resources together for you out there. Um, and, and what we're doing here in the New Testament, like we've done in the, in the Old Testament, um, we have gone through four Gospels, okay? That's what we've covered so far. Um, when I was talking about Luke, and then next week when I talk about Acts, you're going to see so clearly how Luke and Acts go together. Um, Luke is telling us about what Jesus did, and, and Luke tells us at the beginning of Acts that Acts is what Jesus continued to do through his disciples, okay? Um, Luke and Acts together kind of form the basis for Paul's ministry, and so we're going to look at the Pauline epistles. Um, and then there are these other epistles that are called general epistles. They're not specific like, like Paul's epistles that are to people and places uh, specifically addressing issues. They're, they're much more general and broad than that. And then last week when I was talking about John, I highlighted how that the, the John has three different things that he does. He writes a gospel, he writes the book of Revelation, and then these epistles. And in general, what he's basically doing in the gospels is he's saying, Jesus came, he's the son of God, believe in him. Uh, in Revelation, he's saying he's coming back. He's the judge. Um, be prepared for that. And in the middle, Jesus came. He's coming back. In the middle, how do you live? Abiding in him, walking in love, walking in light. That's how the, the Johannine epistles go together. Uh, as we work through Acts and the Pauline epistles, we're going to take this chart like we did the chart in the Old Testament and see how all of this fits together. Um, I have provided uh, earlier this chart um, that, that puts together the dates to the best that we, we can put them together. Uh, there are some that we don't know exactly when they were, they were exactly written, but it's the dates and the order in which they're written, the author and where they were when they wrote them. So this is kind of putting the whole narrative together for you. Um, as we have finished up the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I, I was talking through all of that a lot about this issue of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, as we saw last week, John's very different. He has a very different perspective. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of things in common. This crazy chart here <laughs> puts that together in, in a way that for some of you, this is going to be helpful. For others of you, I'm gonna, I'll move on. Trust me, I'll, I'll move past this. But what this chart does is this puts together um, the shared material of these people. Now, let me begin by saying the core shared material is the life of Christ. They're talking about the life of Christ. Um, but there are some parts that are unique. Only Luke tells a certain amount of stories. That's about 35% of Luke is, one-third of Luke is just stories Luke has. About 20% of Matthew are stories that just Matthew have. But the two of them share, Matthew and, and Luke, they share about a fourth of their, of their narrative. Mark, on the other hand, is very different. Unique to Mark is only 8%. There's only 8%. 72% of what's going on in Mark is in other Gospels. It's in Mark, or it's in Matthew, and it's in Luke. Um, and then there's some things that just Matthew and Mark have, just Luke and Mark have. Um, but you can see there's, there's, there's kind of a lot that they're sharing and, and somehow, either, either Mark wrote first, and he's got a shorter gospel, and Matthew and Mark are expanding them, 
or Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke have written and Luke is summarizing them, or they're just all drawing from the life of Christ, which is true anyways. Um, but they certainly share some material in that. And John is outside of that. Now, putting that together, here's what I want to say. They're, the perspectives are very different. They're only talking about the life of Jesus, but they have a very different perspective. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are basically viewing life, the life of Jesus from earth to heaven. Matthew, Mark, and Luke start with either his birth or his genealogies. Here's this person who was born. Here's his parents. Here's his early life. And then eventually they're going to drive you to, and he's the son of God, and he's coming to redeem us for our sins. John takes that and flips it on its head. John starts off with Jesus from heaven. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and he took on flesh. By the time you get to verse 14, Jesus is incarnated. The Son of God is here, and, and he comes in that first section, chapters 1, 1 through 18, to redeem us. So you start with him with this heavenly mission, and then he moves into what Jesus is doing here on the ground and eventually takes him to the cross where he is going to redeem us. Uh, their perspectives are slightly different as well. Um, the synoptics are going to focus more on his ministry in the north, whereas John's going to focus more on his travels and his ministry in Judea. Um, in the synoptics, Jesus is really the son of David and the son of man, whereas John really focuses on he's the son of God, all of them divine titles. Um, the synoptics were more the gospel for the, what, what I'm going to call the infant church. They, for the, the early, early church really focused on the synoptics. When the church really started to spread to other areas, the gospel of John, with all of its deep, rich theology, became really a, a central focus for that. Um, in the synoptics, he's teaching crowds. In the gospel of John, he's teaching more his, his followers. There's more of a focus on that. In the synoptics, it's, it's his big teachings and his, his actions that are highlighted, what he's doing. Um, whereas in John, it's highlighting his identity and his mission. Um, in the synoptics, very little interaction and reflection on the part of the author. Um, John is going to say, hey, I'm the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved, and you're going to see him showing up more in that. One of the most interesting things is that in the synoptics, if you only read the synoptics for the life of Christ, you would think that Jesus' ministry was maybe only one year long because the synoptics only present one a trip of Jesus to, to observe Passover during his ministry. But John fills that out, and because of what we have in John, we know that he made at least three trips to observe Passover, and in all likelihood, even just during his ministry, um, he would have probably gone to J Jerusalem for the festivals probably nine times during his ministry. Um, both the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy tell us that an observant Jew would go to Jerusalem three times a year. Um, for Passover in the spring, for Pentecost in the middle of the summer, and for the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And Jesus, as an observant Jew, is going to do that. He probably makes all of these trips to Jerusalem. Um, but they focus on just the Passover trips because it's during his teaching on the Passover and during those times that he has this opportunity to basically say, I am the Passover. Um, and he does that very frequently. Um, so that's the one Jesus in two perspectives, the synoptic perspective and John's perspective. Um, this is why, by the way, I feel like if you really have someone who didn't grow up in church, who doesn't have much background with the scriptures, I would hand them the gospel of Mark first, not John. John's a bit of a shock. Um, 
I mean, it's true. And for those who are more mature, you just love it because you start off with all this stuff. You go, yes, that's exactly what I believe. But if someone's just searching, uh, Mark is such a great gospel to read because it's got a lot of action and it's going to move you pretty quickly through the life of Jesus to get you to his redemptive work. You get there by chapter 8. If I were to put the four Gospels we've covered together, if I were to put that in a summary form, here's what I would say. Matthew is presenting that Jesus is the king. Listen to him. As the king, he delivers this new Torah. He delivers these five major messages in Matthew that are parallel to the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, the books of Moses. And it's basically saying, listen to what he's saying. Mark is going to say, Jesus is the servant. He came to seek and to, to serve us. So follow him. Luke is telling us Jesus is the Savior for all, so proclaim him. John is going to say Jesus is God, so believe in him. These four messages are all critical to understanding who Jesus is. He is the king who came to serve us. He's our Savior, and he's the Son of God. So believe in him, proclaim that message, follow him, and listen to what he teaches. That's what's going on in these four Gospels. Geographically, let me set this for you. This is uh, kind of a map of the Middle East. You can see Saudi Arabia there and Sudan and, and Egypt. You can see Iran and Iraq. Um, the area where Jesus lived in the Middle East is right there, um, and he spent his entire life in this area, maybe from the north uh, uh, in Syria, just a little bit down uh, to, to perhaps down as, as far as the Dead Sea. Um, what that looks like on the map here um, is is most of his ministry is in the north, but we know a lot of his ministry in the south in Judea because that's where Jerusalem is. He's making these trips down to Jerusalem. He travels through Samaria, which is the middle area, but most of his ministry that we have in the Gospels is up here in the north in Galilee. So he's ministering in the north, making trips down to Ju Jerusalem, which is in Judea, sometimes traveling through Samaria, and then sometimes traveling through this area over on the uh, outside the land on the other side of the Jordan, uh, which is called Perea or the Decapolis. And he does some ministry over there. In fact, he, he feeds 5,000 um, on, um, on the west side of the Jordan, and he feeds 4,000 on the east side of the Jordan. It's a really important theological distinction that is made there. Um, by the way, I had to make a correction as I was putting all this together uh, this week. Um, I've been saying that Jesus went to the temple in 8 BC. That would have been 9 BC, actually, when you put it all together. Uh, so this chart is actually finally correct. Um, this chart, I'm not sure how helpful this is. All I want you to see is there's a lot more dots up in the north because a lot of his ministry is in the north until he finally shows up to do his redemptive work in the south. Where he's doing that is in Jerusalem. This is a picture of what it would look like if you were coming up to Jerusalem. You would have seen this, the, the city on the hillside. But up on the top of this hill is called the Temple Mound. Now, that initially would have been the crest of a hill. But over the years, and particularly under the reign of Herod the Great, um, starting many years before Jesus was even born, um, they're expanding that Temple Mound and making it um, not just the crest of a hill, but a 30-acre platform upon which this very elaborate temple stood. Um, and so you can see that, that that's, the, that's the temple. So Jesus is going to go, and he's going to do some teaching in the courtyards of the temple. But here's another perspective on that. You can see that, that courtyard there. Um, a lot of Jesus' ministry during that final week is going to be outside the bounds of the city, 
and eventually his ascension is going to be from the Mount of Olives. If you, if you kind of go outside the city, you go down this kind of steep cliff, and then there's the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives, probably the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere over there to the east of the city. Bethany would have been even further out where he's with Mary and Martha during those times. Um, but this is what it would have all looked like, okay? Um, I put it together with uh, a number of the different dates and, again, corrected the, the one date to 9 A.D., um, and, and his life works together this way. Not, we're not going to do the motions today. We'll get back to them maybe at some point. But there's really three sections to, to Christ's life. His preparation, where it validates that he really is the Messiah by his, his birth, a virgin birth. By his, his baptism, where, where God speaks from heaven, the Spirit comes down on him, and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then he passes the test through the temptation to say, even when I'm tempted 40 days directly by Satan, I will not sin. And he's now prepared for this ministry, and he begins to teach his, his believers. Um, during his actual ministry, there's three years, maybe three and a half years. The first year, he's really obscure. As he's teaching, nobody knows who he is. He's teaching smaller groups. And even when he's doing miraculous things and healing, he's telling people, don't tell anybody about this. And so there's a year where he's, there's just a lot of obscurity. But eventually, he starts doing more public ministries, allowing people to talk about that. He becomes really, really popular. The crowds are growing, and that causes the attention of the religious leaders to say, we've got to do something about this, because if he, um, if he gets the hearts of the people, we will lose our control and our power over the people. And so then there's a year of opposition, and that opposition grows from just, we want to find out you know, the things he's doing wrong, to we're going to, we're going to catch him in his words, till we're going to set a trap for him in his words until finally what they're doing is they're they're cooking up this plot and and a lot of players get together who normally would not play together in order to get Jesus killed all during that three and a half year time he's training his disciples to take over his ministry so that after he's gone they will continue and proclaim this around the world when he finally arrives in Jerusalem um, there's going to be um, a number of different trials, civil trials, religious trials. Three times he's going to be proclaimed innocent, which that's the point. He is innocent. He, his crucifixion is going to be the crucifixion of not a guilty person, but an innocent person. And his crucifixion is in our place, an innocent person suffering for us and then triumphing over sin, death, Satan, evil through his resurrection and then he ascends into heaven to intercede for us while he leaves us to do what he has called us to do and take this message of the gospel around the world. That's the life of Jesus, okay? So there, there you have, this is what we, we're talking about. And, and everything in the Bible um, is leading up to this. Everything in the Bible is not directly related to this, okay? Jesus is, is the culmination of, but he's not directly connected to everything. I, my illustration is, if I go back to the judges, the judges are not pictures of Jesus. They're pictures of failure. These guys are the, the, the picture of, these, this is not your solution. These charismatic warlords, they're not your solution. The kings, they're not your solution. The prophets, nobody listened to them. That's not the solution. We don't need laws and leaders and lessons. What we need is a person. We need Jesus. And, and a lot of the Old Testament is just showing this is not going to work for you. You need Jesus. He's the final installment of God's plan. Um, 
back in 1984, two years before Dawn and I got married, um, something was happening technologically, and um, I had an opportunity to take advantage of this. And so in 1984, I bought that computer, the Apple Macintosh. Um, I bought actually the, the Mac, the, it was called a Fat Mac. The reason it was a Fat Mac is it had two disk drives in it, okay? No hard drive in it at all. No, no hard drive, okay? I bought that computer and black and white screen. It wasn't until years later that I got a color screen. Um, 19, probably Colorado Dawn, 92. I bet 92, I finally ended up with a color screen with my Macintosh. I remember um, when I first bought a hard drive, it was, it was about as big as this Bible, and it was 20 megabytes, not gigabytes, 20 megabytes. I've got 32 on my phone. Um, I mean, crazy. Now, um, I bought that computer. And I, st- I don't own it. You know why? Well, I upgraded to the, the color one and to one with a hard disk inside of it. And when I came here in 1999, um, this was the computer I, I brought here in 1999, a black Apple Macintosh um, laptop. And I thought I was cooking with gas, man. No, <laughs> no wireless internet connection here at all. I'm plugging in Banshee screen to, to be able to get on. Over the years, my upgrade path has looked a little bit like that. Don will tell you. We have spent so much money on Apple computers and Apple products over the years. If we would take the money we have spent on Apple products to this date, and back in 1984 when I bought my first Macintosh, if I would have just taken that amount of money and invested it in Apple stock, I would be in Hawaii today. (laughs) Now, here's an even more crazy thing, okay? All of those computers... Every computer I've ever owned until the last couple are not as powerful as that watch. What I have on my wrist right now is far more powerful than most computers and phones I have ever owned and far more powerful than the computers that were used to get the guys back from Apollo 13 who were stranded in space. They didn't have what I have on my wrist. I have upgraded a lot. Just a survey. How many of you are early adopters? You're, you, you upgrade. I'm, I'm an early adopter. Jordan uh, came home. Yeah, there you go. You know, everybody who's raising their hand is going, yeah, I'm sorry. Kind of shamefully. Um, when, when Jordan came home from his first year of Baylor, he, he got a job at AT&T, and his job when you walked into AT&T uh, was to, to engage you and to ask um, if you were interested in an iPhone. I bought the first iPhone. I wish I still had it. It'd be worth a lot. It's called the Silverback, uh, that, that first iPhone, and I've kind of upgraded all along. I, 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 I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of an early adopter. Now, there are people who are not, how many of you are not early adopters? You're just like, yeah, most of you, okay? Pharisees. Um, <laughs> The, the people who are not early adopters, it's, it's, I, I understand it because it's my wife. Um, just let my phone keep doing what it's doing. I don't want my phone. It, it stops. I just want to make a phone call. And now the buttons are all, there's not a button anymore. Oh, my gosh. Dawn's got a phone with a button. What, 
what kind of person am I married to? Jeez. Um, but let's, let's think about this. Whether you're an early adopter or you resist the upgrades, wouldn't it be fun to get one final upgrade that was finished? You, no more upgrades were needed. You didn't need to upgrade your system. You didn't need, and by the way, they force you to the upgrades. Don't you hate that when all of a sudden you're just like, well, this thing I used to be able to do, my phone won't even do it anymore. Yeah, it's because you, you know, you got to buy a new one. Um, they force you into the upgrades. How would you like to get the final upgrade? Here's the one piece of technology. You'll never need to upgrade it. Anything that could ever be done will be done on this. Wouldn't that be great? Jesus is the final upgrade. There are a lot of things that came beforehand, and those things were all pointing towards the final upgrade, the final installment. Jesus is the final upgrade. He's the final installment. You don't need anything else. He's the final word. He's the perfect provision, and he is the supreme example. He's the final word. Let's look at this. Hebrews says it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors and the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And through him also, he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God spoke in a lot of other different ways, but in the final days, here's the last word you needed to have. You needed to just know Jesus. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. There's nothing superior to him. He's the final upgrade. You need nothing more. He's the final word from God. He's the final word on our human condition. Listen to this from Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. We fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Hebrews tells us he's the glory of God. He's the perfect standard. He's the radiance of God's glory, and we all fall short. So what is our human condition? No matter how well you're doing, you fall short. He's the final word on the human condition. And he's the final word on the divine solution. If you keep reading in Romans, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This, this verse is so packed full of what Christ did for us. The shedding of his blood takes care of our sin. We receive that by faith. And all of the other sacrifices, God just, he kind of, in his forbearance, he let them go because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't, sacri wasn't covering their sin. He let them go until Christ became the perfect sacrifice for all sin. Christ is the word on our condition. We fall short of his glory exemplified in Christ. Christ is the word on the divine solution, and he's the, he's the final word on our purpose for living. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians. But whatever we were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Everything else I could do in my life is a loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ. That's what John said. Remember last week, eternal life is not length of life. Everybody has eternal life. They're all, everybody's going to live forever. Eternal life is a quality of life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that you know him and him who, and the one who sent Jesus. You, you know God. That's what eternal life is. That's the purpose is, is knowing him. He goes on to say, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. He is the final word on our condition, lost, short of the glory of God, the final word on the provision that has made, been made by Christ. And our purpose for living is to know him and represent him well in the world. But Jesus Christ is also the perfect provision for that. Hebrews tells us this way, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. His, he, he had to come because the old one wasn't sufficient. Um, he's a perfect provision because he brings a better covenant. Because of his oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. How is he bringing a better covenant? Well, it's a covenant that doesn't depend on us anymore. It depends on him because he fulfilled the first covenant. Everything in the first covenant that said you have to live this way, we could never do it. He did it. He fulfilled the covenant and fulfilling that covenant, he says, and now I fulfilled that when I got a new one for you. Trust me, faith in me. That's the way to be reconciled to God, not living by the law. I did that for you. And he brings us a better covenant and he brings a perfect priesthood. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he lives to intercede for them. All the other priests, they kept dying. <laughs> and because they kept dying, um, they had to get a new priest. Jesus lives forever. He's not going to ever be upgraded. And he makes the perfect sacrifice. Such a high priest truly meets our need, this one who never dies, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Um, in the Old Testament, the, the high priest, when he went in on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the entire nation, before he did that, he sacrificed for his own sins and then for the sins of the nation. Jesus didn't have to do that because he had no sins. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the perfect provision for our sin. He's the final word from God. He's the perfect provision and... <laughs> He's the ultimate example for how we should live our lives. I'm reading a book right now. Um, I'm reading actually the second edition of it because the first edition was so good. The book is by Bruce Waltke, and, and it's called Finding the Will of God, A Pagan Notion. Fantastic book. Enough that I'm reading the, second, second, the revised second edition. Um, his point is this. So often we approach the will of God like pagans who are basically saying God's hiding his will from us 
And if I get my act together, if I go through the right incantations, I pray the right way and pray enough, maybe God would reveal his will to us. And he's basically saying in this book, God has revealed his will to us. It's in his word, the written word and the living word. He makes it a little more theological at the very beginning of the book. He says this, why would a God who wants us to do his will hide it from us? Why do Christians go through such convoluted, painful efforts to know it? His will needn't be hidden or elusive, a mystery, a puzzle, an enigma. The answer we seek lies in our theology, what we believe. What you believe, what you know, that's the answer to God's will. He goes on, and this is really fantastic. Our lives and our character ought to be changed by what we believe. And when our lives are changed, we are transformed into his likeness. The concept is very simple. Do you think that we will be better able to understand his will when we're more like him? Here's what he's saying. Most of us feel like this. If I could just understand his will, then I would be like him. He's saying reverse that. Be like him, and then you'll understand his will. Read your Bible. Know about Jesus. Fall in love with him. Be like him enough that you know what Jesus is like. I'm so familiar because I read about him. I love him. I meditate on him. So much so that you're, when you get into your life, you go, yeah, I, I love Jesus. I, I read about him in, in God's word all the time. I see what's revealed. So I wonder, what is God's will? Well, I know what Jesus would do in that situation. I know what, I know Don Wilson really, really well. And you know what I know? When I'm making the bed and the back corner is all messed up because I've taken my feet out of, from under the corner and I've messed up the corner, I know what Don Wilson would do. She'd tuck it back in. What should I do? What's Dawn's will for me? I don't have to figure that out. I know her. Her will for me is tuck it in. Now, <laughs> obedience, that's another problem here. But if we knew Jesus, <laughs> knowing his will would be so much easier. And Jesus is the example of how we should live. When Jesus got together with his disciples in the upper room, here's what happens. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is the example. Love people to the end. Here's the supreme example. Love people to the end. That's what Jesus did. Supreme love and supreme humility. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped the towel around his waist. This is really important. Jesus knew that he had all power, that he had created the world, that he was from God. Anybody qualified? All of us, less than that, right? All of us, less than creator of the world, less than everything submitting to us. Jesus was all of that, and he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. That's the kind of humility he had. He loved them to the end, and he humbled himself that even though he was the creator of the universe and created the people and the dirt that was on their feet, he humbled himself to wash their feet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to this place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that I am, I am, I am who I am, and I am the teacher and the Lord. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Wash people's feet. What's God's will? Be like Jesus. Wash people's feet. That was his service. Truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a master greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Jesus is the final word from God. You need no more upgrade. He's the perfect provision for us. And he's the supreme example for how we live our life. That's why we spend so much time remembering him on a regular basis. So what do you do with a message like this? I'm going to go back to the beginning part. Commit to a Bible strategy and stick to it. Read your Bible um, and, and pick a strategy. You don't have to read through your Bible every year. Maybe you read through those 11 books um, in the Old Testament. If you read through those 11 books, you get the storyline of the Old Testament. Maybe you're just going to read the Gospels this year. Take a whole year to read the Gospels. Um, whatever your strategy is, I, the, choosing the strategies, not the, the critical part. The critical part is stick with a strategy. And here's what I would encourage you. I would encourage you this way. When you, when you fall off and, and you're, not, um, you're, you're not on track, just start reading again. Don't try to figure, just start reading again. Secondly, accept the provision made by Jesus for our sins. He's the final word. He's, he's the provision. And he did it all for us. All we have to do is accept it by faith. Accept that he is who he said he is, the son of God, the savior of the world, and that he could do what he said he could do by dying for us in his resurrection from the dead, he can save us from our sins. Accept his provision and then follow his example and serve and, and maybe make that specific. Who do you need to serve? Do you need to serve better a spouse, a family member, someone you work with? Someone you're estranged from, who do you need to serve? And all of that is exemplified by Jesus. 